Would you please take the word of God and turn with me to the book of Exodus and uh, chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20. As you're turning in Exodus chapter 20, we're going to begin reading in verse 1, and as we continue in this series, we will be adding one commandment at a time. And so this evening, we're going to read the first three verses of Exodus chapter 20. I dealt with an introduction last week on the commandments, and let me just briefly and quickly review them. We mentioned first that the commandments are words through which God has made Himself known. So what we learn here, this is not the construct of man, this is the words of God. This is God making Himself known to man. The Bible is not, as uh, some liberals have indicated, that the Bible is not man's attempt to discover who God is. The Bible is God making himself known to man. Uh, We also noted that the commandments also declare the supremacy and the authority of God. Who can say to us, Thou shalt not? Only God. Because he possesses that authority. And so when we read the commandments, we recognize that God is supreme above man that he has authority over us. We also noted that the commandments are based upon a relationship with God. Even before he goes into the commandments, he says, I am thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And we noted in chapter 19 that God reminded them that the reason why he delivered them was to bring them unto himself. It is not about a land. Although land is a benefit, it is primarily about the Lord. And so these commandments are based upon a relationship with God. We also noted that the commandments were given to a people who were redeemed from bondage. And we know that this redemption was orchestrated by God and by God alone. They were not involved in their redemption. They did not fight the Egyptians. God, through the ten plagues and ultimately through the Passover, brought about the deliverance. It was God that shut shut them up under the waters of the Red Sea. God did all that. And now He speaks to those whom He has delivered, and they ought to be attentive to the Word. So these commandments are given to a redeemed people. We mentioned that the whole idea of redemption is not for the sake of freedom. The idea of redemption is now they have the freedom to listen and to obey and to serve God. And it's a wonderful privilege. We also noted that the commandments address both the divine and the human relationships. The first four commandments deal with man's relationship with God. The last six commandments deal with man's relationship with his fellow man. We also noted that the commandments are only truly fulfilled by love. And we primarily get that from the book of Deuteronomy, but also from the words of Jesus Christ when He says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. The second is like unto the first, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the, all the law and the prophets. And so all the commandments are fulfilled in these two. Love the Lord thy God, love thy neighbor as thyself. And so they're fulfilled by love. We also noted that these commandments, although literal, must also include a broader, deeper, complete application that we have to understand the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. That's where, during the time of Christ, the Pharisees had gone astray. They were concerned only with the letter and not the spirit of the law. And Jesus Christ uh, elevated, gave them the true interpretation of the law, which was Uh, not literal, but, but spiritual in nature. And then we also noted that these commandments, although primarily negative, also communicate positive virtues. Uh, The Christian life is not just a negative one, that specifically when we deal with the commandments with regards to man and how he deals with his fellow man, 
that he ought not just to live and not do things, but he ought to be proactive and doing things. So the example in the book of Romans chapter 12 is, If thine enemy hunger, feed him. You see, uh, he says, don't retaliate, don't render, Romans 12, evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, the contrary is we have to do something positive. And so these commandments are primarily negative, but also they communicate a positive virtue. And lastly, we noted that these commandments, although righteous, cannot impart righteousness nor take away sin. And we know that that's true both in the Old and the New Testament. We see that clearly taught. Now with those things in mind, let's stand together and we're going to begin reading in Exodus 20. Begin in verse 1 and read down to verse 3. And we're going to consider the first commandment this evening. Exodus 20, let's read those three verses together. Okay, Exodus 20, verse 1 through 3. Let's begin. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Here's the title. Very easy for tonight. No other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those Ten Commandments and what they teach us about you, but also what they teach us about ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that we might learn as we go through this series of the Ten Commandments that we might learn not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. That we might be convinced in the areas where we err, and that we might be uh, encouraged to pursue some positive virtues. And so, Lord, may you use these messages as we study these Ten Commandments, that your Spirit would reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Lord, help us not to be as those who do not endure sound doctrine. And so, Lord, conform us to your image. That is our desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I begin here in Exodus chapter 20, we come to the first commandment. And no doubt when we think about the commandments there is uh, this, these are not random in their order. This is God's order. And remember that God gave this order to Moses so that Moses might communicate that order to the children of Israel. And so there's a sense when we come to the first commandment that this is the first thing that God wants us to know. It's the first thing that God wants us to implement. It's the first thing that He wanted the children of Israel to implement And the first question that I have, I I will begin here and really asking a series of questions as we think about this first commandment. And the first question is really this, which is a basic one, is why is this commandment, first of all, necessary? Uh, Why was there such a need to mention this commandment? After After all of this, they've... Uh, already uh, seeing the hand of God through the ten plagues. Uh, They saw God intervene for them uh, at the Red Sea, and the waters were opened, and then the army of the Egyptian was defeated. They they saw God provide for the manna. They saw uh, water coming from the rock. They saw and they tasted the waters of Marah changing from bitter to sweet. They saw how God allowed them to prevail over Amalek, and the Amalekites in the battle. They saw all those things. They've seen now the mountain and the the smoke and the fire coming up and down on Mount Sinai. They've seen all those things. And we might say to ourselves here, well, isn't it self-evident that there is no other God? And certainly we might say, well, it seems very clear. 
that this is self-evident, that there is no other God. So why is there a need, why is it necessary to communicate this first command? And one of the great, uh, and that's because we know one of the great and repeated offenses of the children of Israel in the Old Testament is that they worshipped, yes, and recognized and feared the Lord, but they also worshipped other gods at the same time. You say, well, how can that be? Uh, Certainly if they know that God is the true God and there are no other gods, why is this command needed? I'm going to take you here through some of the Old Testament passages that shows us that Israel from, from its inception as a nation, and what I mean by its inception as a nation, I'm not talking about Abraham, I'm talking about deliverance from Egyptian bondage. That's really when they began to be called a nation. From Abraham would proceed a nation, but they're not really a nation until uh, the redemption out of Egyptian bondage. And so now we see them as a group of people, as a nation, and we know from their inception that there was a struggle with believing and worshiping and fearing the only true and living God, but also being content to recognize and worship other gods. Say, well, I'm not convinced of that. Well, let me convince you from the Bible. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel and chapter 20, Ezekiel chapter 20. If you go find the book of uh, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentation, you'll find the book of Ezekiel. So notice Ezekiel chapter 20. And uh, notice with me, let's begin reading in verse 7. So Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 7. The Bible says here, Then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, remember that statement? I am the Lord your God. How did he begin the commandments? I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so here he makes the same statement here. He's looking back at the time when the children of Israel were redeemed out of Egyptian bondage. One of the things that the children of Israel were told to do was to cast away all the abomination of the Egyptians, the idols of the Egyptians, And we know that Egypt was a pagan society. They had an inordinate amount of gods that they worshipped and so many temples all along the Nile River and throughout the land. And they were told to put away those idols. Notice verse 8. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away their abominations of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I want to pause here and say this. They've gone out of Egypt. Guess what? They kept some idols with them as they left Egypt. So when we come to Exodus chapter 20 and God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It was something that they were dealing with at that present time, even though they had seen God work in miraculous ways over and over and over again. They believed in Jehovah God, but there was other gods, Egyptian gods. He says, neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. We could keep reading really all the way through, but uh, let me bring your attention down to verse 15 of the chapter. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Because they despised my judgments and walked not in my statutes, but polluted my Sabbath, for their heart went went after idols. Their idols. Now notice here the reference. This is important because when we think about the entrance of the children of Israel into the promised land, we think, oh, the only thing that they were dealing with was unbelief. 
No, that was not the only thing they were dealing with. Here the Bible tells us that one of the reasons that they did not go into the promised lands is because they did not forsake their idols. So understand, their unbelief was rooted in the sin of idolatry. There were other things going on in their lives. Some of them had continued to worship and to hold to and to regard to the gods of the Egyptians. And here, by the way, that is why God was trying them. He was trying to weed out the idolatry out of the children of Israel. That's why He brought them through the wilderness wanderings. That's why He didn't bring them into the land initially. Why? Because they were still involved in recognizing some Egyptian gods. And God says they're not completely weeded out. And so you're going to go through 40 more years of wilderness wanderings. And so when God says in Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, that is very pertinent to their present condition. Now, let's fast forward and go to when they enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And towards the end of the conquering of the land, turn with me to Joshua chapter 24. Uh, After their entrance into the land, let's see if there was any problems with other gods or idolatry. So notice with me Joshua chapter 24. uh, No doubt a famous chapter here where there's verses often that you would find on placards. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, Wonderful uh, chapter, wonderful verses. But I want you to notice here leading up to that in Joshua 24, notice verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. And, now notice, they've conquered a great deal of the land. They've seen God do miracles at Jericho. Uh, They saw when uh, there was sin in the camp and they were defeated and when the sin was dealt with, then they got victory over Ai. We saw God work through all those things. Here's Joshua says, Serve the Lord in sincerity and truth, verse 14, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And so if there is a need for Joshua to say that, then they were dealing with that in their present moment. Notice verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, He is He it is that brought us up out of our father of our fathers out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, in which did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all of the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed, and the Lord drave out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwelt in the land. Therefore will we also serve the Lord, for He is our God. And Joshua said unto the people, Ye cannot serve the Lord. For He is an holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if ye forsake the Lord and serve strange gods. Then He will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that He hath done you good. And so here Joshua commanded the people, do not put away the gods of your fathers. Let's go to the time of the kings. Notice with me 2 Kings chapter 17. Now notice, he says, fear the Lord only. What is that? Another way to say is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. There cannot be a combination of a worship of Jehovah God and be permissive towards other gods. Now, Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. Now during the period of the kings, we know it was a a time of ungodliness, notably in the northern kingdom. The kingdom is divided. Uh, You have the northern ten tribes and then Judah and Benjamin to the south. And uh, a lot of wickedness is exposed. But I want you to notice here we kind of capture the the spirit of the time, 2 Kings chapter 17. And notice with me verse 41. Notice what the Bible says. So... These nations feared the Lord and served their graven images. 
both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. Now, do you notice here it seems to be a quandary because as these nations, they fear the Lord, but served their graven images. So there you have a combination of the two. There is a fear of God, but yet they serve their graven images. It is a combination of the two. Let me give you one more example. In the book of Zephaniah, the prophet, when he was sent to preach to the children of Israel, Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 5 says this, And them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by the Lord, and that swear by Malcolm. The children of Israel, uh, of Israel, they swore by the Lord, which means that they swore only allegiance to God. Uh, they swore to be true and faithful to God. They swore to serve and to obey the Lord. However, they also swore by Malcolm, which is, by the way, another name for Molech, the god Molech, which is the god of the Amorites. So here's the condition of Israel. They swore to serve God, but they swore also to serve Molech. God had said from the very beginning, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What happened to the children of Israel? They were divided in their religious devotion. But let me emphasize here as we go to this command, they were divided in their devotion. I want us to remember that. They were divided in their devotion. So why is this commandment necessary? Because they were dealing with the sin of idolatry at the present time, and it seems to be an ongoing condition in the nation of Israel. But the second question I have is, as we read this command, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What is meant by the expression, other gods? I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves, and I think we have to go beyond the surface because we know that ultimately it means, yes, well, don't serve Molech, and don't serve the god of the Nile. Don't serve the, and you may call them by name, the gods of the Egyptians. Don't serve those gods. We'll see later. Don't bow down yourself before them. Don't, have, don't give any devotions to those false gods. No other gods. But the idea of no other gods goes deeper than just the surface of uh, having, looking at a graven image and saying that I'm, I recognize this other god. Ultimately, what is this about? And I like what Matthew Henry says about what is meant by other gods. He writes this and he says, It is to love, to desire, to delight in, or to expect any good from any sinful indulgence is prohibited. Equally, we are not to allow any person or created thing, however valuable or excellent, to rival God in our affection. All atheism, infidelity, and irreligious is opposition to God, an attempt to be independent of Him. The proud man and his own idol because he worships himself and expects others to do the same. The covetous man makes a god of his wealth, which he loves, depends upon, and expects happiness from. The sensualist, by his, practice, by his practices, worships deities as filthy as any seen in a pagan temple. You see, when we think about uh, breaking this first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. It is the idea that anyone or anything to which I give undue or supreme admiration and affection for is another god. When a person or thing begins to occupy and to dominate the place of our affection, it is probably a God. 
Now, to make such an application here is not only appropriate, but it is absolutely necessary in this sense. The context of these commandments is Israel being delivered from Egyptian bondage. In the book of Ezekiel, we know that the children of Israel were encouraged to forsake the, the idols of the Egyptians, and they did not. Now, we are, I already spent some time on the gods of the Egyptians, but we know and we understand that the Egyptians worshipped many gods. These gods, this is important, these gods were attached to some temporal, earthly gratification. All of those gods. All of those gods were attached to a temporal, earthly gratification. Therefore, these gods, understand these gods, were largely worshipped by the Egyptians because of a personal gratification that these gods seemed to provide. You see, the reason why Israel worshipped other gods is because of what these gods permitted them to do. And by the way, if that is the trouble, then God ultimately has become self. You see, the first commandment was intended not only to forbid the acceptance of pagan gods, but it was also intended to forbid what these gods represented. Now, for example, you come to uh, the time of the Apostle Paul and you have the Temple of Diana. Well, what was the Temple of Diana? Uh, the worship of Diana was, understand, the Temple of Diana was filled with prostitutes. And men from the city would go to the Temple of Diana to indulge in gratification. So understand, the only reason they worship Diana, the goddess Diana, is because she was permissive. To allow self-gratification. But see, the gods of the world are just like that. Here is what I will allow you to do. But God says, thou shalt not. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so God says, you can't do this. And so why would the children of Israel who fear God, why would they accept another God at the same time? Because that God would permit them to do something that God, Jehovah God, did not permit them to do. You see, that's why you begin to chase other gods. Why? Understand, it's not just about the God. It's about what the God represents. The indulgence, the gratification, self-indulgence. What's in it for me? You see, idolatry is the worship of or the reliance of anything in the place of God, and that includes ourselves. Peter Masters writes, and he says, Anything which I choose to do, which is a real diversion, distraction, or alternative to my worship of the Lord, is effectively another God. Similarly, anything which spoils or impairs my wholehearted service for the Lord is another God. Now I want to bring us down now to, we, we, we read this statement that thou shalt have no other gods before me. To break that commandment would be to commit idolatry. So I want us to think about the sin of idolatry. Now in New Testament time, how is it to be understood that Christians, now that's us, can break that first commandment? Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Notice Colossians chapter 3. Let's begin reading in verse 5. Colossians 3 verse 5. The Bible says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Here is a list. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. Notice, which is what? Idolatry. 
God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And in the New Testament, he says, Mortify therefore the deeds of the body. If you're involved in fornication, you give yourselves over to uncleanness, to inordinate affection, to evil concupiscence, and to covetousness, you are committing idolatry. Notice verse 6. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. That's how you used to live your life. So understand, when you before you were saved, that's how you conducted yourself. You had all kinds of gods in your life. But when you became a believer, here's what needs to be mortified. Here's what needs to be put to death. All those gods. All those gods. You see, Paul here lists sins of immorality. Unclean thoughts lusts, evil desires, and he even names covetousness. These are all idolatry. You see, we may not, we may not bow down ourselves before a pagan god, before a statue, before an image, before a tree, yet our pursuit of these earthly gratification, God says they are idolatry. They are idolatry. Let's look at another example. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Notice Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. The Word of God says, For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous, who is an idolater, Now, let's, who is he talking about? Notice who he's going to include with this. So, no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous. How do you summarize that? Idolatry. That's uh, idolatry. Hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? Okay, well, that's what they do. Those who are not part of the kingdom of God. But then he says this in verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. So here's what he says. You're involved in those things, whoremongers and unclean persons, and covetousness, uh, which, uh, which is really part of the life of idolatry of those who know not God. Be careful that you're not deceived by that. Don't be partakers with that. Do not become like the world and assimilate False gods in your life. No other gods before me. Let's go to one more. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Notice verse 18 and 19. Well, let's begin in verse 17. He says, Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. So here he says, we, 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 you, you have us as an example to follow, but look, there's people who are going to lead you astray. And here how he, here's how he summarizes those that can lead them astray. Verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. And whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things whose God is their belly. What, what, what does that mean? Here it is. Any and all, all uncontrolled appetites of the flesh can become gods. All uncontrolled appetites of the flesh can become gods. Now let me give you maybe an example that may not be so self-evident, but maybe the way I summarize it will be helpful. Again, Peter Master says, some believers suffer, for example, from the addiction of anxiety, fretting, and constant worry about trivial domestic arrangements so that their minds are unavailable to the living God and to the major things of life. Whether we realize it or not, If we allow plans and problems to become a serious distraction, they assume the status of other gods because they rob God of our emotional energy for reflection, 
prayer and service and therefore take his place. Sometimes when the time for prayer draws near, almost any other matter can suddenly seem much more interesting or more important and more pressing than prayer. Whatever steals the place of God in that precious and privileged appointment with Him virtually becomes a God. You see, when God says, Thou shalt have no other gods, our focus must not just be on the name of a God, but what that God is associated with and what that God allows us to do. Which brings us to the next question. Is it sufficient, is it sufficient to make God first? Now if you notice immediately this command says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now there's two ways to see that. Right? In other words, it is possible for us to misread those words to mean you may have no other God in front of me, no other God ahead of me, no other God above me. And that reading would enable us to have many idols in our lives so long as they did not challenge the supreme place that we give to God. And it is exactly this compromise that Satan wants to bring about in us. However, the words before me does not mean ahead of me, but in my sight. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No, I don't want to see any other god. There can't be any other gods that are a company that are party of. I am not just first. I am only no other gods before me. You see, it is another forceful way of saying, thou shalt have no other gods at all. Jesus put it this way in the New Testament. No man can serve two masters. Why? For either he will love the one and hate the other. Or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. That's what Jesus said. You, you can't have both. You see, we know that the children of Israel, uh, they said they fear the Lord, but they serve their graven images. Uh, they did not forsake the gods of the Egyptians. And so we say, well, that means that they learn to cooperate with both Jehovah God and the gods of the Egyptians. And that's just not the way it works. Jesus said, you cannot serve God to a, a, a big... And that's why, by the way, God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, no other gods at all, no other gods in my presence. Why? Because you cannot have any and truly have him first and only. Why? Well, let's say... In the example of the goddess Diana, that if you believed in Jehovah God and you fear Jehovah God and then you worship Diana, Diana would permit you to live an immoral lifestyle. But then you think about Jehovah God and Jehovah God has a standard of morality that is not Diane's standard of morality and God says thou shalt not commit adultery and beginning now as you're indulging in sin what happens because you worship the God of the indulgement of immorality then you begin to despise the God that says you can't do that. Leave me alone. Let me make my own decision. Let me walk according to the course of this world, according to my own pleasure. And you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't do it. Because the one that you serve and you hold to, the one you have affection for, will cause you to despise and to hate the other. You can't do both. That is why God is absolutely exclusive. No other gods before me at all. None whatsoever. And so is it sufficient to make God first? No, it is not sufficient to, to make God first. It is the only option. It is God only. No other gods. So, Pastor, I, uh, I go to church. That's good. 
I read my Bible. That's good. I pray. That's good. But you must recognize that it is possible for you to believe in Jehovah God and to recognize Jehovah God, but at the same time to have other gods in your life. And if not dealt with, they will soon overcome Jehovah God in your affection. Because you can't have the presence of both. Now I'll go to more into the practical aspect, and that is, which brings us to the next question, and that is, how can we fight the tendency of idolatry? How can we fight the tendency of idolatry? And let me, let me just give you an example of what idolatry would be like. It doesn't have to be an act where I bow down before an idol, but it can be something in my heart that I desire and crave. Like, I'll give you an example as a pastor. As a pastor, do I desire, me, do I desire numerical growth in the church so that others might admire me because I have a large congregation? I say to you that that desire would be idolatry. I want to be recognized. I'm doing the work of God so that others, I might get the applause of others. I serve God so that I can be recognized, so that I can be lauded. That is idolatry. So how can we fight the tendency of idolatry, by the way, which creeps in every one of us? That's why the instruction for the believers in the New Testament is, beware, that's where you were stuck. You were stuck in a perpetual cycle of idolatry moving from one God to another God to another indulgence of appetites to another and that's how you live your life be careful not to be deceived by that as a Christian beware that you become deceived and the sin of idolatry can creep in we can think about here and, and let's think about covetousness because twice in the New Testament he mentions covetousness to be idolatry well what is covetousness that we're going to talk about that's the 10th commandment Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's ass, thy neighbor's servant. Covetousness is idolatry. Why? It seeks to sign fat satisfaction in everything else except God. Idolatry. And by the way, we can be involved in that, all of us as Christians. I wish I had a bigger house. I, has, I, wish I, had, I wish I had the Ryan's house. I wish I had Brother Wayne's car. Well, no, because that's had 300,000 miles on it. <laughs> but, you know, we, we can... We, by the way, these sentiments that we may cultivate in us, if only I had this situation, if only I had this, if only my, my, my circumstances were just like so-and-so over here, covetousness. We think that those things will satisfy us. We make those things our gods. And we may not bow down and say, I'm worshiping this, uh, this house that I want. I'm worshiping this situation that I'm craving and that I want. It's covetousness. You're looking for another God to satisfy you. That's what the New Testament said. The covetousness, the sin of idolatry. So how can we fight the tendency of idolatry? I would say, first of all, Measure, let's, we must measure our excitement for the things of the Lord against our excitement for any material and earthly things. We must measure our excitement for the things of the Lord against our excitement for anything that is earthly or material. Let, let's, let's ask this question. We get a specific here. Sunday comes around. It's time to go to church. Who is first? Is God first? Now, you go to church, but let me, let, let's measure, let's measure your desire and affection and excitement for the things of God. And now let's take those other areas of your life. Oh, I want this car. 
I want this new purse. I want those new shoes. Now measure, measure the excitement for those things against the excitement for the things of the Lord. And you might have an indication of that which is preeminent. You see, beware of any strong feeling or excitement toward material or earthly things. Especially beware when material and earthly things serve our pride and self-love. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. Look not every man on his own thing. What is that? I'm, I'm looking out for me. Idolatry. But for the things of others. And so first, let's, let's measure our excitement for the things of the Lord against our excitement for anything that is earthly or material. And let's just pause and just say, just by way of observation and reflection, that everything that we see in this world will one day perish and will be gone. But the one thing that does endure, and that is God and our souls and His Word. So let's measure the excitement. But there's a second thing that I believe we can do, and that is, secondly, let's cultivate a spirit of thankfulness and appreciation toward God for the earthly things that we enjoy. See, I'm not saying that we should throw everything away, live on the street, under a piece of cardboard. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying, if we're going to be careful about the sin of idolatry, that we be, make very sure that we recognize that these things come from God. That they don't satisfy us, God satisfies. But that these things God generously blesses us with. Uh, let's, let me give you an example in James. Turn with me to the book of James in chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 13. The Bible says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so he says, Don't err, my beloved brethren. Don't be drawn away of your own lust and enticed and drawn away, and give your life through idolatry. The things that you think are going to satisfy. Don't err in that. Recognize that every good thing comes from above. You see, if we cultivate a spirit of thankfulness and appreciation towards the Lord, then the earthly things will not have so much importance to us and will not be given a place of idolatry if they are subservient to God and God's dealing with us. You see, if we're not careful, we may attach those things, earthly things, as a gauge whether God has been faithful to us or not. Well, God, if you give me this, then it will be a sign that you love me. God, if you do this for me, then it means that you love me. And then if he doesn't do it, it means he doesn't love you. So that's how we can fight the tendency of idolatry. Measure your excitement for the Lord against the things earthly and cultivate a spirit of thankfulness and appreciation towards the Lord for those things that we have. By the way, God has given us all those things to enjoy. Let's, let's, I'm not saying that there is no joy in this life. There are joy in earthly things. Uh, the Lord says the very first command to man is uh, bring the whole creation to subjection. It is for you, but it should not be worshipped. Here is a, a list of four, four questions to ask. And I, I got this list from the book on God's Rules for Holiness from Peter Masters and I thought would be good for us and helpful to us as we ask ourselves on this topic of thou shalt have no other gods before me. 
How can we discern the gods in our lives? First of all, let's ask the question, the first question is, could I do without it? Could I do without it? Now, I know what the world says. Our world is geared towards covetousness. Now remember what covetousness is. Covetousness is idolatry. And so when you look at all the advertisement, what do they keep saying? You cannot live without. You deserve. If you could just get this, you will be happy. What is that? It is the world feeding idolatry. The question, could I do without it? Now, I understand that all of us, we, we all have things in our homes that we say, well, I could do without it. Of course. We can do without a table and chairs and eat off the floor. That, that, we could do that. So I'm not here uh, running to a stream and says, all right, if you can't do it without, give it up everything that, that, you, that you don't need. I'm just saying, could we ask ourselves that question? Or are we just consumed with excitement for everything that we can amass for ourselves? And saying, well, if I could go only get the newest car and then the newest piece of furniture, the newest clothing, then, then I will be happy. And you know as full well as I do that, that, that when you get that thing within a few months, then you want to get the next better thing. That's the pursuit of idolatry. Let's look for the next thing to satisfy. The next thing to indulge us. Could I do without it? You see, for us, it needs to be this. It needs to be an emotionless transition when we purchase something. Could I do without it? Could I be without it? Second question to ask. Discerning to discern the gods in our lives. Has it begun to rule me? Has it begun to rule me? I'll give you an example, an illustration. I... Remember when we began to put money aside for retirement into a Roth IRA, and um, it goes based on, on the market. And so, you know, the market fluctuates and changes every day. I know you all know this, but when I started, you know, I put $100 here, $200 here, $500, and then you see it fluctuate. And pretty soon I found myself every single day tuning in to that app, looking how the market would do today. And let me tell you what it did for me. It was not beneficial. Why? Because every time the market was down, my heart sunk. Every time the market was up, all of a sudden I became happy. Let me say, if, that is, if our emotions are dependent on earthly things, it is in the wrong place. It's become a God. It has become a God. The things of earth are not designed to affect us in such a way. And if they do, they've become a God. Has it begun to rule me? And then you begin, oh, I wonder what it's going to be today. And it begins to rule you and to dictate your life. I'm thankful that I saw that and then just the Holy Spirit just slaps me around and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's a Roth IRA. You're not touching it until you're 67. Why are you even looking at it? Has it begun to rule? I want us to ask ourselves, what is it that rules our, us and our emotions? What is it that leads us along on the leash? If it's not the Lord, then it's become a God. The third question to ask is, is there any sense of unnecessary urgency about it? Is there any sense of unnecessary urgency about it? You see, because here's something about the flesh. The flesh wants something now. And if we, if we, and we pursue and we want it now and we're not satisfied until we get it, it, becomes, it has become a God. We, we, we see, you know, uh, we think about the word. People are, they're all into the, the trends. And so for the cell phones, you know, there's the battles on, uh, I, I'll butcher the names, but there's the, the, uh, the Apple iPhone, and then there's the, uh, the Android, and then there's the new uh, Google Pixel, and there's all those, and, and people are lined up as soon as the new one comes out. 
They have to have the newest one. They have to be the first one. They have to have the new color that comes out. They have to have the new giga gigas, which one, whichever one has the most space on it. And they get all involved in all those things. They, 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 what did I say? Everybody's la- laughing. Okay, giga gigas. Okay, yeah. Well, whatever they call it. Gigabytes, terabytes. You, you know what it is. If there is a sense of, I have to have it, it has become a God. Fourth, ask the question, is it of me or of the Lord? Is it for me or for the Lord? Of me, of the Lord, or for me, for the Lord? Uh, And let me put it this way, what is the motive What is the motive? If the motive is the motive to be noticed and admired, is the motivation to be be comfortable, is the motivation to be happy? Now, the reason I say that is because happiness is a byproduct. It's not a pursuit. But too many people in the world are looking for happiness, seeking for happiness. By the way, it can become a god. It's like a shot of dopamine. You get something and you have an instant thrill about it and then that thrill dissipates so you've got to move to the next thing and then the next thing, it's a God. I just want to be happy. Then you are idolatrous. Happiness is a byproduct. As I mentioned, as a pastor, do I desire numerical results so that others might admire and say, yeah, he pastors a congregation of... 500. Motivation. What is it? What is it? What is it that drives our activities? What is our motive? Why am I serving the Lord? What is my objective? What goal am I trying to attain? You see, the commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's not, well, I I have God first, and then all these other things in my life. No, no. It must be God and God alone. And maybe we can all testify to that fact that if it's not God and God alone, if it's God and then a bunch of other things behind then we have other gods. And the likely outcome is that those other gods will soon crowd out Jehovah God. And we will begin... You know, how how does a believer get to the place where he forsakes God and despises God? I will tell you how. Because he has accepted other gods in his life. It could be the God of lust, the God of immorality indulgence, permission to do those things that this God has granted me. And then we begin to reason. And because we know what God says, we begin to despise God. Because God will not permit us to do this and to be involved in that life. So when you read here, no other gods before me, I really want us in the application not to say, well, There's no other gods before me because, you see, I go to church and I carry a Bible under my arm when I come to church and I pray and I even read my Bible. But I'm asking for all the other areas of your life. It's not God and this and this and this and this. It's God and God alone. The pattern in the Old Testament and the New Testament was when God was not God and God alone. It became no God at all. Paul, when he had Demas come with him, he had to write a grievous letter when he said, Demas hath forsaken me. And then he gives the reason, having loved this present world. He was serving God. What happened to Demas? Demas started looking to the world and he allowed another God 
to come into his life, and that God was the world. Now, we know because of 1 John what the world is. All that is in the world is what? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So one of those areas, that's where De- what Demas, that's another God. Somewhere along the line, Demas at some point, by the way, doesn't happen all of a sudden. At some point, Demas in his life, he believed in Jehovah God. He served, Paul, he served the Lord with Paul, the Apostle Paul. He saw people get saved. He saw God do miraculous things. And along the line, he allowed another God to come in his life. And he began to be interested in the things of the world. Whether it was the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes, he began to either see things. Well, I wish I had that life. I wish I could have this. I wish I could be involved with this. I wish I could do this. I, I wish I could be this person over here. And all of a sudden, that crowded out to where there is no more any God. No more any service for God. Why? Because another God has taken its place. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so our desire ought to be this. If we do not, if we do not want to be idolaters, by the way, which is a potential in all of us, God and God alone. And we have to examine our lives and we have to say, is there anything in my life that I have more affection for, more desire for, that I think will give me more peace than God. Then that is the God. That is not just the letter of the law. It is the spirit of the law. No other gods at all.